Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'm happy to say that today we have Ruha Benjamin on the show, and we're going to be talking about her terrific new book just out from Polity Press called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. We'll have to talk about that expression, New Jim Code. We will do that. So, Ruha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a trained as a sociologist. I'm currently an associate professor of African American studies at Princeton. And within sociology, my specialty is looking at the social dimensions of science, technology, and medicine. So broadly speaking, I'm interested in the relationship between innovation and inequity. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I really thought your book was very interesting. And, and it reminded me of something that I that occurred to me when I was stopping, I was shopping at a place called Stop and Shop here in Massachusetts. It was in Boston, actually. Uh, in the 1990s, I think, it might have been the late 80s. And this is when barcodes were first uh, introduced, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but I remember thinking, they're going to know everything I buy. Because <laughs> right. I was paying with a credit card. They're going to know every goddamn darn thing I buy. <laughs> That's incredible. And then they're going to yeah. be able to pitch me. I mean, me. <laughs> just exactly. the Marshall Poe, like what Marshall Poe wants. I'm like, that's incredible. Because I knew a little bit about databases and information technology. So I was I was kind of aware of that. And then once I started to buy everything online, as everyone does, I'm like, now they really know everything I buy. Exactly. <laughs> that's kind of scary. Exactly. Um, the early days of targeted advertising is yeah, what you're describing. <laughs> right. And I'm sure you've had the experience of like getting on Google and like seeing those ads up above, you know, when they, or even on your email and like, hey, I kind of want that. How do they know I want that? Totally. You were just, you were just searching for it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. How do they know that? That's, that's kind of freaky. Exactly. That's really, kind of, that's really kind of what your book is about. It's about, I used to work in, in a big corporation and we talked about segments and verticals. Mm. <laughs> it was all segments and verticals. Exactly. And how you get into them. So why don't you begin by telling us why you wrote, uh, wrote uh, Race After Technology? Sure thing. So a few years ago, um, I was on a sabbatical and I was working on a, on a different project um, altogether. And I kept noticing these headlines and hot takes about so-called racist robots. There are all kinds of stories in the news that initially seemed really surprised at the idea that technology and robots as a kind of heuristic for automation more broadly could be some in some way biased. And then there was a second wave of headlines, it was less surprised, but was kind of like, duh, of course, you know, technology inherits its creators' biases. And now I think I've seen it evolve where people are become, starting to acknowledge that this is possible and, and people are trying to come up with all kinds of interventions and tweaks and fixes for what some call algorithmic discrimination or machine bias. And I was interested to bring the long um, li- the, the large literature around um, race, racism, sociology of race and inequality to bear on these questions. Because in some ways, 
um, it seemed as if the, the framing of it was as if it was some new phenomenon rather than an extension of longstanding forms of inequality. So I wanted to look at how computer systems were an extension of other kinds of systemic forms of inequality, whether in the legal system, educational system, healthcare system, rather than as some kind of co- completely new phenomenon. So that motivated me to write the book. Mm-hmm. And well, let's jump right into it. And you have this really very evocative expression, the new gym code. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So that's one of these concepts that I'm trying to use to evoke the history of racial discrimination in this country, looking to Jim Crow segregation as, um, you know, one particular period of white supremacist legal discrimination in this country, and then riffing off of Michelle Alexander's analysis in her book, The New Jim Crow, in which she's looking at how mass incarceration is an extension, is a next institution of racial control and racial discrimination. So within that genealogy, I'm interested in how technology exacerbates, it reproduces, or even hides discrimination. And to get at that technological aspect of it, I substituted New Jim Crow for New Jim Code so we can think about how computer systems enable longstanding forms of discrimination by race, class, gender, or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice segue. Can you give us some examples of the ways in which computer technologies do these things? Absolutely. So just a couple of weeks ago, some colleagues of mine had got access. Well, they got access long before the, the study was published a couple of weeks ago about a, a healthcare algorithm that's used in throughout our healthcare system, affecting millions and millions of patients. And what they found by studying the, the algorithm was that it um, disproportionately um, uh, excluded black patients from needed care. And so this is a kind of a software system that flags patients before they get really sick to try to intervene to prevent some of the illnesses that they see coming down the line. And because of the way that the algorithm is designed, it used past healthcare costs as a proxy for healthcare needs. So it used how much we spend on patients in the past as a way to predict how sick they will get in the future. However, on average, we spend, uh, white patients um, incur um, much more um, in terms of cost than black patients for a variety of reasons. And so if we spend less on black patients, then according to this system, they would require less attention in the future when in fact they often were sicker at a certain uh, risk point in terms of this algorithm. And so what we found, what, the, what my colleagues found and what then I, I did in my review piece in science was show how in the, the program designers and the people who implemented, because they weren't taking into consideration this history of past forms of discrimination, they um, unwittingly reproduced health disparities by um, excluding Black patients from, um, from, from future health um, sort of preventative ha- care. And so this is one example in which it's not malicious intent. It's not the, the desire to actively harm Black people in the healthcare system, but it's an indifference to this history of exclusion and disparity in the past that um, reproduces it into the future and ensures that the, that the people who most need a particular form of service or care are not going to get it. And, and this would be true generally of people who don't spend very much on healthcare because they don't have very much. 
Absolutely. And so in that way, it's a race neutral um, algorithm. But because the, the race and class are so intertwined in this country, um, that it's disproportionately affecting black patients in this in this particular case. Mm-hmm. I, I want to ask a question about. Um, I'm trying to think how to best put this about the kind of conundrum which I think a lot of businesses face because businesses, you know, they have to be profitable if they're going to continue to offer the services and goods that they provide. Uh, and you work in the world you have, not in the world you want. So it seems to me like a lot of them, and I certainly take your point that none of this is malicious, uh, they're, they're kind of forced in this direction. of, tar- And I'm thinking of targeting in particular and the, th- the ways in which I'm targeted and people I know are targeted. It, that you, you really have to cater to the clientele that can pay you. And and I, I'm wondering, like, if you were talking to somebody who ran one of these businesses or something, what, what would you suggest that they do to to take into consideration these 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 histories of inequality and 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 racism things like this yeah so you know i mean part of my concern is that so many of the technologies that are being developed um are being both developed and implemented in what we might think of as the private sector but they have all of these public policy implications and so what my concern is, is not necessarily to advise the private sector, but for us to actually invest a lot more in public interest technologies. And so from the get-go, sort of from the development phase, from the problem-posing phase of what technologies we even need in the first place, not even just um, applying them, how can we put public values at the forefront rather than allowing a profit imperative to drive this because as you as you note in your question so long as the bottom line is the kind of um, driving force and kind of trumps other kinds of values in the process i don't think we're going to uh, sort of be able to skirt or tweak our way out of technology reinforcing inequities so long as that's the motivator and so i think we need you know in terms of um our focus and investment is to really think about what public interest technologies might look like and where that they might be developed. Mm-hmm. And where, where would, where would that investment come from? So a lot of the, 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 the starting of point I think is to think about the intellectual foundations of technological development. A lot of academic um, centers are being um, started and reinvested in that can provide the, the intellectual foundations of technological development. So there's that. There's a lot of um, research centers that are kind of hybrid centers that put public values at their forefront. I think about the Data and Society Research Center um, Institute in New York City as one. Another one is called AI Now. And so again, it's not, it's not um, centers that are simply about criticizing um, technological development, but are trying to bring together technologists who want to put public values at the forefront of their work and putting them in collaboration with communities, ad- advocates, people in policy who also have that as their core ethic. And so on my on my personal website, ruhabenjamin.com, I have a, re- a resources tab with a long list of um, initiatives, centers, individuals who are working along these lines. Uh-huh. And can you mention some of them? I mean, uh, you, you mentioned sure. a couple, yeah. 
Yeah. So sure. Another one is called the Algorithmic Justice League out of MIT. One of the researchers who was at the forefront of exposing the discrimination embedded in facial recognition technologies a few years ago, Joy Bulamwini, after she conducted the research, she actually started the Algorithmic Justice League. That is a, a, a network of people who are working to address the biases that are reproduced through um, algorithms and, and computer systems. And so that's another one. There's also a lot of community-based um, organizations that work under the rubric of tech justice. And so the, da- uh, the Data for Black Lives is a national network of thousands of people who um, are a combination of technologists, people were a lot of people working in STEM, but working alongside advocates and policy folks, communities. And so that's an annual conference and a network um, that um, is really on fire in terms of attracting people who want to think about the public values that need to guide technology. And then in terms of community organizations, Detroit um, has, a, has a, a really great organization called the Detroit Community Tech Justice Initiative that is become a model for a lot of other local initiatives around the country. Um, and so, you know, again, the list goes on and on. And a lot of these organizations have produced um, different kinds of tools and handbooks that I describe in chapter five of my book that can be adapted in other locales. And so both um, tools and hand, and sort of ways to facilitate civic conversations around this. And so I would encourage listeners who maybe can't find a local organization where they are to draw upon um, these resources and maybe initiate this. And so the idea is that we just need a lot more people in the conversation and, and actively involved, not just the people who have the tech knowledge, but also the, the social and cultural background and knowledge, because the issues that we're talking about are really too important to leave to those who, who have one type of expertise when there's many issues that are implicated in, um, in, in tech injustice. And so we need to think about this in terms of a broader polity, a democratic approach and participatory approach to tech development. Mm-hmm. I want to broaden the discussion a little bit and bring it back to what I said at the beginning of the interview. And that is much of your book is about targeting. And I know that you know I run the New Books Network, and we do a lot of targeting, and we use social media to do it. And we target people that are interested in things like East Asian studies mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or sociology or something like that. But I, I wonder if you had, you know, the, the thing about targeting is is that you know it's good in one way. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I think it's great that 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 Google can show me things that I might want that I didn't know about, and then really that's kind yeah. of what we do in the New Books Network is we 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 show people things that they opt into that they want yeah. that they would but on the other hand it does it does kind of you know i i'm i'm really struggling on how to put this but it, it I, i'm a type of person yeah, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and it further typifies me yes it, there, there's a there's a reductive aspect to it and one way to think about what the the flip side of tar, uh, of kind of targeted advertising or tailored advertising is when powerful institutions um, target you in a way that's more akin to surveillance rather than sort of marketing. And so, you know, part of what we want to think about in terms of the duplicity of technology, the fact that it can have this upside, but it can have this underside that we are not often really privy to, is that it really matters the larger infrastructure that the technology is being wielded in. And so whether that has to do 
with the institution or the people that are behind the scenes with what guiding assumptions and values, what kind of system is it being enrolled to further? And so it's not simply, we're not simply, it's not enough to just evaluate the technology in isolation from this broader network or this broader infrastructure. And so that's why we need to think about, um, you know, what, what comes before even the development of any technology, who's around the table, what is the problem that technology is even meant to solve and intervene in. And so I would agree with you that part of the real allure and the reason why many people until very recently haven't necessarily questioned how deeply these technologies are penetrating our everyday life is because it makes us feel seen in particular ways and recognized as somehow unique. We don't necessarily experience it as being typified. We experience it as being like, wow, my, my screen, you know, my sort of search engine knows exactly what I'm interested <laughs> in, you know? And so there's a, there's a sense of feeling recognized rather than simply lumped together that um, is really creates a consumer demand for many of these technologies that we have to recognize has a, a deep underside when that data is used in ways that are uh, can control us and sort of put us in certain boxes and further be used by um, institutions that don't have our best interests at heart. And some groups um, are more vulnerable to this misuse and this and this surveillance than others. And so that's part of what we want to recognize is that for some people, it's no big deal. It's like, sure, you know, you get all my data so that I can like buy the best products and have the best things sold to me. And there are some groups for whom that data um, it can really come to harm or exclude or lock you out of certain opportunities. The same types of targeted, the forms that companies use, let's say, to make sure that you see an ad that you really need, that same form allows them um, to actually exclude certain groups. So for example, if I'm a housing developer and I'm going to fill out a, a, you know, I want to get my, my housing ads in front of the eyes of a certain demographic, the same moment that I'm choosing which demographics I want to see my ad, I can also choose who I don't want to see. And that can include elderly people. That can include people with children. Yeah. That can include um, Black and Latinx communities. And so this is a way in which old school forms of discrimination that you were, took the form, for example, of, you know, I, I think of my grandma's neighborhood in LA where I have this, um, this ad that housing developers used in which they only wanted white home buyers in that neighborhood. And so they, in trying to attract them there, they said, come buy these houses because we have beneficial restrictions built into the the housing. Um, so that meant we are going to exclude Negroes from infiltrating this neighborhood. That was an old school targeted advertisement that we think it was like of days gone by. But now you can go and do the same thing behind the screen and ensure that Black people don't see your ad. Right now, there's a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit against some developers um, who are, who are um, excluding elderly people from seeing um, ad, housing ads in DC. So it's an example of, you know, the underside of being seen is that some people are being excluded and we have to reckon with that duplicity. Yeah. I would, I want to say to all the marketers out there that I actually want to see the Porsche ads. 
I can't afford a Porsche, but I, I want to see them. God damn you it. Want to see I want to see I like cars. I really do. I drive a yeah. beat up minivan for my kids. But man, I want to see those Porsche ads. Can yeah. you send those to me, please? Yeah, but then because you're not likely to click on no, it, or I, maybe no. they don't want to waste it on you. And so, be you know, no Porsches. Yeah. It's also funny. So you mentioned, we, I was going to say, it's also funny you mentioned the, uh, it reminds me of something from my youth, which was a heck of a long time ago. Um, yeah. In Kansas, actually. And I used to really like Michael Jackson a lot and and uh we share that in very, very okay. incredible guy really i don't i mean mm-hmm. I, i'm sure there are politics around it i don't want to go into that but i liked his music a lot i personally yeah. think that off the wall was his best album that's just me <laughs> i don't know but yeah i remember that suddenly there was this thing urban radio Remember yeah. that? Like, <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, that's a great example. Yeah, that's like, a great that, example. That, like, didn't exi- it also existed. Urban radio. I'm like, what does that mean exactly? Urban yeah. radio. <laughs> yeah. And so that's a great example of code words. And yeah. so before we even get to the encoding in like technical systems, our language encodes difference and it, it signals certain things without making it explicit. And so racially coded language, like, urban is one of those ways in which you are you're invoking a certain listener and you're also trying to push away people who wouldn't necessarily be interested in in whatever comes with that coded um you know um, that term yeah but on the you know again there's kind of two sides to this coin it's a very sensitive issue because for the people who are promoting what is essentially black music or what we would call black music i don't know if there is such a thing but let's just say that there is from the marketer's point of view that, that establishing urban radio as a thing helped yeah. helped produce urban radio stations, which are now quite profitable enterprises that actually serve, I guess, African-Americans. You know, I mean, I, I don't yeah. know. It didn't exist when I was a kid. We had country and 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 top 40. And Michael Jackson yeah. was on the top 40 radio station. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a it's a hard, you know, it established this community of interest on the one hand. But on the other hand, it kind of, I felt a little excluded from urban radio, to be honest with you, as a white guy. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that it's that mix of, you know, the kind of bet the upside. And we always have to ask, you know, whose interest does it serve ultimately, you know, to have, have these form segmented markets and, you know, the sort of tar- targeted advertising and so on. Because certainly part of what drives it is that there is a big upside. People are really profiting off of the segmentation and this tailoring. And so we want to sort of complicate that um, experience by looking also at who is potentially harmed or excluded. In the case of the, the music world and radio, it may not be as, the stakes may not be as high, but when you think of um, job opportunities, being excluded from that or being able to get a loan on a house or being able to access certain forms of healthcare, the stakes of you know being left out of a kind of digital targeting um, can can be life and death in some cases, as the healthcare example shows. Yeah, that's certainly that's that's certainly true, and 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 that's a very serious matter. But it seems to me that you could just as easily tweak the. Uh, I mean, that an entrepreneur could come along and say, "Well, these algorithms that these big medical companies have are excluding this population. I could probably serve this population." in the sense of giving them some good or service that would be of value to them. So I'll make my own algorithm. Actually, and in fact, yeah. the researchers that I mentioned are working with the company whose algorithm they 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 expose to actually make it 
better and to make it work in the way that it was intended, which is to flag patients who need, you know, more attention. And so in that case, the researchers are off offering pro bono. And so rather than like another company coming in and making a profit off of it, they're saying, well, the, the, it's too important to, to leave it to that. And so they're actually helping the company um, develop it in a way that won't have this racial disparity um, as the outcome. Well, and I should say, you don't need to be a expert in medical demographics to know that there are a lot of underserved populations in the United yeah. States and that and that, that 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 is a market that you could probably serve in some sort of sensible and useful way. Yeah. So you can actually you, you could design an algorithm that actually goes after those people and and essentially offers them some good or service that would be, you know, of value to them. I wouldn't want to lose that market segment either if I were in the insurance trade or the housing trade or whatever it is because it's really in their best interest of course to go provide those people with goods and services because they probably want them. And certainly that is definitely one one way forward. Another is to really think about, you know, whether it's healthcare or housing, any of these things that are sort of basic to people's well-being, whether we should just leave it to, you know, market opportunists to step in, you know, because if that's the case, going back to your first provocation, it's likely that if a certain population is not seen as profitable, if not seen as having sort of, you know, um, you know, market power, then they're going to continue to be underserved. And so just leaving it to the whims of the market, I think when it comes to especially the basic needs that people um, have to, to be well and to live a good life, we need to think about what other kind of public accountability and public um, sort of apparatus infrastructure we need if we're going to turn to technology to address these rather than just leaving it to, to simply, um, you know, hope, hoping that good actors in the market will step in to serve different groups. Because at least for, you know, racialized populations in this country, poor people in this country, they've often not been served by leaving it completely to, um, you know, business to come in with healthcare and, and housing and so on. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Because I mean, you know, I, I guess I run a business now. And, and I know that I, I need to find a clientele. We do advertising on the New Books Network. And I, I know that advertising is, is targeted. Uh, so for example, we get a lot of ads, they're pumped in by a company that we work with. And so we get a lot of doctors without borders. For, oh. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's yeah. for good reason, because we reach people who are generally liberal, they're very highly educated, they probably know what doctors without borders is, and they probably yeah. have the disposable income to donate to doctors without yeah. borders. And you, by the way, you should donate to doctors without borders. <laughs> <laughs> good plan. So good but plan. we don't get a, a lot of, uh, well, other kinds of, of ads pumped in because they're targeting. And you know, and yeah. I can I can just hear it when I hear the ads. I know what kind of ads that we get, and they are for people that are generally well educated and probably have disposable income. Yeah, and so there, certainly the the this area of targeted advertisement and sort of social media exclusion inclusion is one really important site of the new gym code and there are so many others that i think are more hidden in which you it's not really you don't see it on your screen at all you just you are excluded or you're harmed by a system without being fully cognizant and that's why in some ways 
the one, the, the distinction with older forms of racial discrimination is that you can't point to a racist boogeyman. You can't point to the racist judge or the racist doctor because it's a computer system that's making decisions that are reproducing these past forms of discrimination. But the, the who to hold responsible is much harder um, in this case. Yeah, because it's, um, it's so funny because I was just reading Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, mm-hmm. back when Lyndon Johnson was coming up, there were like, I, I, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but there were real racists, like explicit racist mm-hmm. segregationists. But now we have this yeah. kind of racism without racists, which is very, yeah. it's a, it's, t- it's a tough thing, you know? And again, I, I don't yeah. mean to say there aren't racists. There definitely are racists, but there definitely it's just, not, are. It's just yeah. not as explicit as it used to be. I want to come back to something you said, and that is that you hear a lot of criticism, uh, especially among the chattering classes on Twitter and things like this about uh, censorship and discrimination on on platforms like Twitter yeah. and uh, like Facebook and YouTube, but it's almost always political. Conservatives are mm-hmm. saying they're being banned mm-hmm. or liberals are saying they're being banned, shadow banned, mm-hmm. I think is what it's called. But you never yeah. hear about this deeper kind of That's right. bias that you're talking about. Yeah. So like, you know, all You should of write an op-ed. All- <laughs> I, I, that's a good idea. I'll tell them you sent me. Yeah, you're right, not bad uh, about that. But that's right. It's like the social media form of this get monopolizes a lot of the airway, a lot of the public attention. And I think what we really need to also sort of draw into the conversation is how almost every facet of our lives in some way is being shaped by automated decision systems, whether it's in finance or whether it's in our educational system, public benefit system, um, all of the, all of the aspects of our lives, but it's this, the social media aspect of, because we spend so much time in that sort of forum, um, where, where the, the discrimination or the exclusion is happening there seems to, seems to get a lot of attention. And so what I'm trying to do with the book is to zoom the lens out a bit and to show how it, in our criminal justice system, we're seeing this. Um, and again, when a system, an automated system that seems to take the human agency or subjectivity out of the qu- equation is actually just hiding the, dis- the human decisions that went into the production of it. And that's what I'm trying to excavate through the book to show how past patterns of making decision are the input for these predictive systems or these automated systems, rather than thinking that technology grows on trees and somehow is going to be more objective than we mere humans. It's funny you mentioned this because sometimes they go awry in really hilarious ways. I just, before I got, I got a robo call that was entirely in Chinese. (laughs) My last name's Po. Right, so, oh, wow. so I, I think I don't, I don't, I, I can't imagine how I got it, but it was entirely in Chinese. I mean, they. they I mean, that's <laughs> such a great example because there's no, there's no harm. You kind of just laugh, chuckle, and hang up. But so that same like faulty, you know, uh, aspect that you experience through the robocall, it's actually ha- it's wreaked havoc in people's lives because these systems do make all kinds of. Mistakes, And so I'm thinking now of, um, you know, the state of Michigan, where Governor Snyder at the time adopted an automated decision system to flag people who were um, uh, engaged in unemployment fraud. And so the system flagged tens of thousands of people and had people paying back money to the state that they actually didn't owe. People went bankrupt. They lost their homes file for divorce, some people committed suicide, all because they had this 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 system that had had 
incorrectly flagged them as engaged in unemployment fraud. Now there's a class action lawsuit against the state, but that's an example where the mistakes built into the the system had real real dire consequences yeah. for people's lives. And yet it was, the, again, all framed under the rubric of being more efficient, being more fair than if humans were did, did it or with an old kind of computer system did it. And so, you know, I think we should use the funny examples as a, a, an entry yeah. point to think about how when the same sort of glitches are, are, are um, taking shape in in the, in other aspects of our lives, we really need to pay attention. Yeah, well, one of the aspects of our lives that I, I'm particularly concerned about is uh, financial services. Now, I, I know quite a bit about finance, and uh, I have stocks and bonds and a retirement account and all this other stuff. And I was raised to know about these things, but a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. And and I do all my banking locally, so I know my banker. But I'm mm-hmm. constantly bombarded with these offers for mm-hmm. easy loans. And yeah. and credit yeah. cards I don't need, and I can I I I work with a lot of people that are um uh, essentially they're addicts uh, addicts yeah. and and um and alcoholics, yeah. Yeah. and these people don't <laughs> they don't know yeah. anything about this. It just looks like kind of yeah. manna from easy heaven money. for them. Yeah, yeah, easy money, right? Easy money yeah. is the right. Yeah, but they just don't know what they're getting into. Yeah, and if they actually talk to a person who was sensible and had their interests in mind. Yeah, they'd say you don't want this credit card. This yeah. is not a good thing for you. You yeah. don't need this, and you're likely to misuse it in some way. Not out of any maliciousness, but you just don't understand the way these things are structured. And yeah. and I'm very concerned about that. You know that that aspect of of targeting. You know, like you could target Absolutely. people without credit cards to try to give them credit cards. I don't know if that'd Absolutely. be a good business decision, but they do do it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you're right to be, feel weary about it. I was just in Nairobi, Kenya uh, in August and um, giving a talk to African computer scientists from across the continent. Um, And so I was looking for like local examples to kind of illustrate some of the the concepts and the principles I'd been thinking about more in the U.S. context. And what I came across was the way in which U.S. um, financial tech companies had basically, you know, targeted um, people in Kenya with all of these this e- these easy money apps, where a, such a large portion of the population now is indebted, taking money from one app to pay their loans to another. And for me, one of the the most troublesome aspects of it is the way that the stigma around debt is being actively used to. Um, um, you know, both surveil people and to try to, you know, get and more data on the part of these companies, because the more data they get from the people who sign up for these apps, it actually makes their, it, it feeds their algorithms in terms of who then to target. And so they'll call people's parents, their employers in order to try to get back the, the money owed. And, you know, in some ways, the, the narrative around um, access to this money is one of like, empowerment, banking the unbanked, people who haven't had access to traditional kinds of finance now have access to this easy money. So the narrative is all empowerment. But when you look carefully at it, people are um, really making money off of people's perpetual indebtedness. The, The point is to stay in debt, you know, to keep people in debt. And so I think in that case, we can learn it's a, a slightly more advanced version of what you're describing in which a vast majority of the population are, um, that's where the majority of their financing and, and, and loans come from are through 
um, uh, through companies, not even Kenyan companies, right? Companies based in Silicon Valley that are um, taking advantage in many ways off of um, people's need to finance basic aspects, you know, whether it's healthcare, education, and so on. Yeah, I don't. So, I, I, I I know enough not to piss off, if you'll pardon the expression, yeah. uh, credit card companies, but <laughs> credit cards are strange things, sort yeah. of sociologically, because they are a business that relies for its profitability on your bad behavior. Yes. 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 Credit card companies hate me because I always pay on time. I've never (laughs) not, they hate me. They lose tons Uh, of money on me because I always pay it off on time. Now, credit is obviously a very, very good thing. You need to have credit. That's absolutely essential. And it's interesting you mentioned being unbanked because a lot of the people that I work with have been unbanked and largely Mm. due to their own bad behavior. But but then, you know, they get these, they get these offers of, of, from some bank somewhere, I don't know where, uh, that offers to uh, open a bank account for them. I mean, yeah. and, and again, it's this duality. It's on the one hand, that's good because they can start the road to credit worthiness. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, <laughs> on the other yeah. hand, and I always tell them the same thing. I'm like, go down to East Hampton Savings Bank and talk to Joan because mm-hmm. <laughs> Joan knows me. And yeah, she'll the- <laughs> set you up, okay? Yeah. And I'll explain who you are to her. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll get you something that will suit you. Not this thing that you found on the internet oh. because you were targeted, uh, because right you on. were unbanked. Because right right it's incredible that th- that information is even available. Yeah. That you were unbanked. Because that just that, yeah. that stuff just follows you around, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And for anyone who wants to dig in more to this, again, it's not my area of expertise, the financial tech um, issues. But I have a colleague, Tamara Knopper, who contributed a chapter to my other book, uh, Captivating Technology. So you look up Tamara Knopper and Captivating Technology. She does a deep dive into this way in which um, our, our, as you said, credit worthiness is being enfolded into this broader category of digital character. How our character, um, all of our activities online are being quantified. And so we hear sometimes about like the dystopic, the dystopic sort of version of a citizen score in China that, you know, tracks everything that you do and your trustworthiness and so on. But there are versions of this being um, here, right? That that evolved organically here. Yeah. And so we, we need to, and it's interesting because it, it, the, the, the companies that are in the business of, you know, the, this this broader version of like quantifying our credit worthiness based on all kinds of things that we do online and even our social networks. That is, if someone you know, and so this might be interesting for you, who we're talking about the people that you know, if people that you know default on loans, that is enrolled into your score. That is because of your, your social networking um, activities, they will know if people in your network um, have defaulted or, or, you know, not, not paid on time. And so this is a way in which the more and more data that is collected um, is likely to be used against us. Even if our own individual behavior we deem to be responsible, that's not going to, that's not holding up into the, in this broader, you know, this broader form of quantification. And so this means that we should be we should care about the the wider system, even if we think that we're behaving in a way that is going to garner some kind of reward through these systems, because it's going to come back to her harm us. 
Yeah, I, I work with a contractor. I renovate. I'm renovating the house that I live in now, and and I work with this contractor. He's a great guy, and he was unbanked at one time, I imagine. But he keeps a very careful track of his own credit score, which is extraordinarily good. I don't know how he does it, but he's really tweaked it. Like I always pay off, and mine is as good as his. <laughs> but he was setting up an account at a Sherwin Williams, and they said to him, uh, "We need to check your credit," and and he knew enough to say. Is that a hard check or a soft check? Because mm. if it's a hard check, what's called, a, I think he called it a hard check, mm -hmm. that affects your credit score. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> Just checking. Right. Like, yeah. And he's like, if it's a hard check, I don't want it done. Wow. <laughs> who knew? Yeah. I, I had no idea exactly. about this stuff, man. Come and, on. Like, and and most people don't. Yeah. yeah. And But there's a... There's a benefit to keeping people in the dark about these things too, you know. So yeah, hard check, I mean, part part what motivates me in in both the writing of the book and just going around and talking to different communities is that you know, in terms of public awareness and consciousness about how now technology is mediating these longstanding forms of you know uh, whether it's exploitation or you know whatever the context is, we need to we need to have more people aware of the implications of certain technical systems in our lives so that we can question it and, and have people representing us in office who are more knowledgeable and more willing to um, hold the, the, these tech companies accountable. Well, and, and not only that, uh, might I suggest that some of these companies should like hire some sociologists? <laughs> they are. You know, it's funny. In the last couple of years, what's, what's, I, I read somewhere it's called the tech lash, a backlash against tech in the last, you know, since say Cambridge Analytica and a few of the other scandals. And so, in fact, many of these companies are, um, you know, kind of trying to um, address the, the, the criticism from what's kind of insider ball. And so they are hiring philosophers, sociologists, anthropologists. But I think that that is, you know, that's good on one level, but it's still, we need more independent oversight, kind of leaving it to the people who are creating the problem to also create the solution and police themselves. We need to think about what a, like a, a deeper form of accountability might look like. And so they are, they're following your advice um, but that kind of domestication of the critique by having insiders, because ultimately, if you work for a company, how likely are you to really um, offer hard criticism or flag things if that's where your paycheck is coming from, even if you are a sociologist, right? And so we need some some more independent forms of um, accountability in, in the world that we're living in right now. So you mentioned the word oversight, and oversight is a word that uh, a lot of people are uncomfortable with. Uh, what, how, what would this oversight look like in your dream world? You know, you know, I, I, in part because I am um, part of the work is geared towards criticizing um, predictive and prescriptive forms of technological development. I'm also wary of offering policy prescriptions that are just born out of my own sort of imagination. Part of what I'm really trying to advocate is a more democratic participatory approach to both technology and, the pol and tech policy. And so what I would encourage is people to get involved in some of the organizations that I mentioned that are doing both local, national, and international kinds of thinking and deliberation um, consultation around what this might look like. On one end of this, um, it's taking the form of particular kinds of bans and moratoria on technologies that are shown to be both inaccurate and harmful. 
for example, facial recognition systems. So we have a number of cities around the country, San Francisco to Somerville, where the city, the municipalities are, are uh, banning facial recognition systems, especially by, by police. Um, and so that's one end where people are just refusing or stopping the use of particular technologies. And so that's one way to think about what accountability would look like. But I'm interested in more proactive, preventative forms of accountability structures that begin implementing um, uh, accountability. And, and by that, I'm thinking about thinking about how technologies are likely to affect the most vulnerable in particular populations. Um, so whether that's um, poor people or racialized groups or um, women. And so we want to think about how past forms of discrimination we should assume that these past forms of discrimination are going to be reproduced through automated decision systems unless proven otherwise. Right now, the default assumption is that these are, you know, these are neutral or they're going to be good. And if they happen to have a harmful effects, then we'll deal with it out after the fact. The accountability kicks in after the harm is already demonstrated. And I think we need to assume that the harm will occur if unless proven otherwise, unless these issues have been addressed from the get-go. And so for me, that has that, you know, one way of thinking about that is in kinds of um, sort of oversight committees and boards, kind of typical, you know, um, through our legislative process and so on. But for me, the education system is another site in which we start to seed um ways of thinking about technological uh, technological accountability before we even get to the point of developing technology how do we, how should we train students and practitioners in stem fields differently so that they're thinking about the ethical and political dimensions of their work well before someone is funding them to develop some algorithmic system you know rather than thinking about that someone else's job what about really onboarding these issues and questions in the training. And since I'm a teacher at heart, like that's where I tend to put most of my energy. I know lots of different groups and people who are thinking at other in other aspects of this, you know, whether it's the policy or litigation, thinking about accountability in the context of litigation and so on. But I'm thinking about seeding ways of thinking and accountable um, accountability through our higher education system right now. Students either get a very token kind of exposure to the ethical dimensions of their work. One class here, one lecture here. It's very optional. If you happen to care about these issues, then maybe you, you, get, you get some exposure to it. But I would love to see it integrated more thoroughly into the training of students in the computer sciences, life sciences, and across the board. That is thinking about the social dimensions, political dimensions of their work. Yeah, I think it's important to be aware in that way. And and we try to be here on the New Books Network, you know, like, so I've mentioned East Asian studies. I don't want people who are just interested in East Asian studies to listen to new books in East Asian studies. Yes. I, I want a lot of people to listen to it. But I have to say, it is rather targeted right from the get-go because it's called East Asian studies. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm not sure what I can do about that. I want to, we, we, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I want to end with a kind of off-the-wall question. Yeah. I just finished reading... And I'm kind of ashamed to admit this. Uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, mm. which I think may be the great American novel now that mm. I've finished reading it. Mm. it it's alternatively uh, 
uh, very moving and hilarious. Mm. That guy had a great sense of humor. I don't know if you've read it, but it, the kind of takeaway I got from it is that guy wanted to be treated as an individual. Mm. He, he, he's constantly stereotyped. First, yeah. he's a black guy from the South, and then he goes to New York, and then he's still, you know, he's stereotyped in another way. Yeah. He joins what is essentially the Communist Party stereotyped there, and yeah. he's just stereotyped all over the place, and it just drives him up the wall. Yeah. Um, is there any, I mean, again, and you know, the American project is to treat us all from, you know, kind of as individuals. Yeah. So could that ever happen in the algorithmic world? Is that a possibility? I, it's so hard. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of what we, you know, it kind of rounds out where we started with in terms of the, the, the inherent reductive goal of these technologies to kind of typify us, create, you know, different groupings, and then make predictions or, you know, decisions based on these groupings. And so in this context, I think it does run counter in the very nature of the, 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 the technology to think about reducing people to, you know, and, and I think individual, like whole, like understanding people as whole individuals, right. Um, I think runs counter to it. There is a, a propensity to think of us as little bits of data, you know, so individual forms of data are composite of these very discrete forms of data, which is a flattening of our individuality. And so I think that it runs counter to your vision of what, um, you know, a kind of good life or free, free life would look like in the kind of Ellison version of it. Although I would say that for me, that's not necessarily my vision of liberation or freedom to be solely kind of a free floating individual. I think part of how we get meaning in life is to be connected to other people and to think of our, and to work in groups and to think of ourselves as collective. So I would love to see a collective vision of what, you know, um, a good life would be like rather than just simply a kind of um, individualism that we sort of see as the hallmark of, of freedom in this country. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely because I'm a member of a number of, I guess I would call it groups or communities. They're all pretty much local, except for the New Books Network, which is transnational because we have all these hosts. But I, 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 I enjoy being a member of those communities yeah. and I enjoy being identified with them. It, it, it's, it's something that I, I take a, a great amount of satisfaction in. Um, so I, I'm really not wholly an individual. Yeah, I think. Uh, and again, I, go ahead. No, I think I was thinking that maybe part of the distinction is when those groupings are used against us, when they're ascribed, when we don't have a choice in how we're grouped, when it's something that is imposed on us. I think that's where the oppressive or exploitative nature of collective identity comes from. But when we choose them, and when they are fluid. And when you can move across groups and so where there's more agency involved in that sort of collective life, I think that's where the joy comes from. And that's where the, the, the positive aspect of sociality comes from. And so part of what, when we think, think bring it back to the, the, the context of data in our digital world is that most of the digital forms of grouping are coming from the outside, the, the decision of how to group us and how to use those groupings are out of our hands. And that's where the problem lies, who controls the kind of the, the, the digital apparatus. And so it's not the digital itself that is intrinsically um, um, exploitative or oppressive or reinforcing of hierarchies, but it's the power dynamics involved and the fact that 
Um, a very small slice of humanity currently has control over the digital infrastructure of the world. And that is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the problem, which I mentioned, was I don't get any Porsche ads. <laughs> I know that's to be a little bit. I don't mean to do that, but I, I do. I do. Feel, I do bridle at that a little bit um, because I don't get those. But I, I take what you say absolutely, and I, I agree. I agree essentially com- completely. I do want to be an individual, but then again, I belong to these groups. But I chose to be members of those exactly. groups. Exactly. And you know, like I don't know. I just I'm riffing on this, but like yeah. when people identify me as white, I'm like I don't do that. Yeah. I like yeah. So you're saying that's what I am. I don't. I I didn't join something called. The, I I just it's not. I it's an accident of my birth. Yes. Um. Yeah. And and it's it's frustrating. You yeah. know when people stereotype you, or I'm kind of a big guy, so people make assumptions about me because yeah. I'm a big guy. But I'm like, I don't like that exactly. It's not it doesn't feel comfortable. And I think Ellison is very good about this because people keep looking at him and saying, "Oh, he's that kind of person." Absolutely. So we're going to put him in that box. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Ellison must have been a really interesting guy. I, I I imagine he was something of a contrarian and not very much fun at a party. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And the consequences of whether it's size or race or gender. The, the, the differences around our differences. So some differences have much greater consequence in our lives. Oh, and, yeah. so, and so part of it is thinking for those who you know, are experiencing the digital forms of inequality in a, in a more superficial, you know, in, on a so, more superficial plane, I think it's important, you know, for listeners who are like, you know, what's the big deal uh, you know, with targeting or what's the big deal with risk predictions and so on, because they're often experiencing the overside of these systems to really recognize that their experience is, um, is not, you know, the same as people who's, who are being targeted for being a likely criminal or being a likely defaulter on a loan because not yeah. of their own choices, but because they fit a profile. And so for the people who are experiencing the underside of these systems, the, the conversation takes on um, a sort of, you know, a more urgency. And I would encourage those who can't necessarily relate to it at that level to one, you know, read up on the literature of the people who are trying to theorize this and explain this, but also get connected to communities who are trying to address this, many of whom I mentioned at the top of our interview. Yeah, well, from... Your lips to God's ears, yep. as they used to say. I don't know if they say that anymore. Do they still say that? I, I hope it. they do. I've heard Yeah, it. it's, it's a good one. Well, let me close the interview by asking our traditional final question, and that is, Ruha, what are you working on now? Um, so I'm taking a little break, giving myself two months until the new year. <laughs> um, not going to any beautiful locations, no clear blue water, but just giving myself a mental break and just enjoying the conversations that are growing out of um, race after technology and captivating technology. And then I'm likely to restart a project that I put on hold, looking at the politics of genetics and DNA collection, especially with respect to policing immigrant communities and, and national identity. And so that project is called the Emperor's New Genes, G-E-N-E-S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to have you on when you're done with that. Thank you. Take your time. (laughs) Um, Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Rua Benjamin about her book, Race After Technology, uh, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. It's just out from Polity Press. I really enjoyed the book and I encourage you to go buy it. Rua, thank you much for being on the show. A true pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 